Love that video, don't you? Powerful, powerful. Good morning. You guys doing all right? Pastor Mark slipped up and he allowed me to preach again. So I'm here with y'all this morning. And uh, no, it is, uh, it's been uh, just a, a great opportunity again every time to come here and be able to speak with you guys, talk with you guys, hang out with y'all. Except my middle school, high school crew, you know, who just look at me and like, Pastor Matt, you stink, you stink. But you guys are a little bit more like lively. I like that. I appreciate that. So, uh, <laughs> so anyways, man, hey, it has been, hasn't it been just a beautiful week? Well, I mean, the weather has been absolutely incredible. And uh, I get some nods from a lot of you. And I also see some people that are like sniffling. They got your tissues and your red eyes and you got your allergies like, yeah. Really beautiful out, Matthew. Really great. I don't want to. There's like some crazy storm, or whatever, and you know, bringing up all the pollen and all the stuff that makes us kind of, you know, not necessarily enjoy. But we we have to. We got to enjoy the way. It's absolutely beautiful. I was out in the uh, my yard, and uh, I was gardening. Yeah, where are my gardeners at? Where's my green thumbs? Okay, don't be ashamed. Sorry. You know you're getting older when you like to garden. I'm just. I'm just, I didn't say old, I say older. I'm just, because I'm, I'm getting, getting older, and, uh, but no, I really, I really enjoy it. I love the, uh, just this time of the year, because it, uh, man, it's just beautiful. You get to see the flowers blooming, you get to see um, new life, you know, it's, it's springtime, and, uh, and, and what a beautiful picture that God has given us uh, through nature to kind of remind us of the centerpiece of all new life, and that's the resurrection of Christ, right? And so it has been uh, just been great. We had last week, Pastor Mark, um, he, uh, he began to talk about resurrection, began to ask that question, what, what if we didn't have the resurrection? Really making us kind of question um, just that, that reality or question that kind of that thought to get us to really understand how essential the resurrection is to our faith. It is absolutely essential. And he quoted uh, uh, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where the Apostle Paul says what? He says, we are to be the most pitied of all people if the resurrection isn't true. Right? Be pity. Why did, and why does he say that? He says that because they were, they were giving their lives for the sake of the gospel. They're giving their lives for the sake of this testimony of the resurrected Jesus. They're getting beaten. They're they're getting stoned. They're getting put in jail. They're experiencing all these these hardships for the sake of the gospel. And so, man, this is just perfect timing for us to kind of transition back to our series in the book of Acts called Defining the Church. Defining the Church. Why? Because the book of Acts is a bridge between the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament. And if you've not gotten a chance to hear parts 1 through 8 um, yet, I, I encourage you to kind of go back online, begin to kind of catch up, recap, because I can't go through all of that right now. I feel like Pastor Mark puts me in a position where I have to like recap like 13 weeks of information so that we can get to one point. So no, you got to do that. You got to work on your own. Um, but I'll give you this one uh, kind of piece that uh, Pastor Mark highlighted. He hit the nail right on the head in the first in part one of, of Acts series by highlighting a specific verse that is the bridge between the uh, Gospels and the rest of the New Testament. And it's this central theme weaving throughout the book of Acts it is Acts 1.8, and so we're going to read that, and then I'm going to ask you a question. Does that sound good? Some of you like, don't ask me questions too early in the morning. It's all right, all right, I'm going to ask you a question. Acts 1.8, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Question. How do you and I view this text? I just let that hang. How do you and I 
view this text? How do we view it? Okay, so we see you. Thank you for that. Robert. I love you, bro. You're speaking up. I like it. We're we're engaged here. I, I believe that how you and I view this one text will greatly influence the way that we will interact with the rest of the Book of Acts and engage in the world around us today. Now, before again you answer that question, I know Robert. He jumped right into it. But before you answer that question, I think we have to just be real with. The fact that a lot of us, like Pastor Mark mentioned in, in the first uh, part of this series, that we come with this preconceived notions and expectations when it comes to the book of Acts, don't we? He's talking about just how a lot of denominational backgrounds and liturgical you know, influence. There's just a lot of different things that you know, we come with these preconceived notions when it comes to the book of Acts. And I don't know if you remember, but he used a, uh, his illustration of when he was coming back from uh, visiting family and uh, the whole baby shark situation. Anybody remember that? Just, just to spare everybody's sanity, we will not uh, go in depth of that baby shark analogy or illustration, but you can go back and you can look at it. But he uses that illustration as a means to kind of highlight the fact that we have a perspective. We, we, sometimes we have perspectives in, uh, to, to situations, and they can sometimes be switched up and uh, kind of catch, catch us off guard. And so it's one thing to read this passage in the book of Acts with all the exploits, the miracles, and say uh, to ourselves, wow, that's really cool. That's really cool for them, Right? That's just so, that's so cool. Hey, man, they're just, you know, doing all these miracles. Yeah, they're empowered by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, you go, you know, like, you guys, back then, go. And kind of cheer them on. That's one perspective. And then there's another perspective when we begin reading this text and we allow that text to begin to read us, right? It's like, you begin to sit down and you're reading the book of Acts, you're reading the Bible, reading the scriptures, kind of digging into it, and all of a sudden somebody slips a mirror in between the pages and your eyes. And what happens? Perspective change, right? <laughs> you're like, whoa, okay. <laughs> Some of us are like, okay, looking, something weird going on here, and start fixing stuff. <laughs> but the reality is when we look at it, we begin to see that. What's staring back at us, what God is trying to speak to us is saying that it's not just them being the church, it's we are being the church. We are that church, right? I love this. I love how they put that up there. And I know Pastor Mark and, and Seth kind of worked on that illustration. But it's this, it's this reality that it's not just the people 2,000 years ago who are followers of Christ that are being spoken to by Jesus, but it's the fact that it is here today, us, the church, the believers, we are the church that he's speaking to. Amen? Are we tracking? It's this, it's the fact that it's, it, it's not a building. The church is not a building made by human hands, but it's the workmanship of God it is the it has always been his idea, and he's defining this church. Sarah always gets on to me about this when she says, oh, we're going we're to go to church. I said, no, 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 baby, we're not going to church. We are the church. She's like, gosh. But it, it's, it means something. <laughs> like, babe, we're going, we're not going to, it's not a, a play. We are the church, right? We are the church. And so we should read the book of Acts as prescriptive writing, giving us a picture and an image of what we as the church should look like. Now, it's also descriptive as well, as Pastor Mark has talked about early on. He said it's descriptive as well. It's, this, it's the reality that, man, God was doing something really special 2,000 years ago in you know, first century Palestinian Jews and their contact, there was something very special going on there that 
that uh, we have to recognize. And, and, and we have to kind of um, take that and kind of look at our culture and we look at our context and we can begin to ask, God, what are you doing here with us? So it's, dis- it's descriptive. It definitely is descriptive. God was doing something very special in that point in time when, he, when there was the Holy Spirit given out, poured out as a fulfillment of uh, the Joel prophecy. It wasn't just closed back up. Like the heavens weren't closed back up. And then, you know, later on, they kind of open up here and there. No, no, it was opened up. God says, we, all those who ask, all those who ask for the Holy Spirit, ask for him, he'll give it to them. It's a gift. So it's descriptive, and it's prescriptive. And within this prescriptive writing, this perspective, uh, perspective, we also understand that it's also apologetic. It's apologetic in nature. And some of you guys think, you know, wait, apology? Like, you got to say you're sorry? Like, what? You say with that aspect? No, 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 I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about apo- the apologetic theological aspects of our faith. And no, it's not, it's our English word apology comes from a, a Greek word, apologia, which translates to answer, referring to a defense presented in court. A defense presented in court. So apologetics is the branch of theology that deals with the defense of the faith. Now, some of you guys may be thinking, you know, the truth is the truth. It doesn't need to be defended. You know, and I get that. I, I, I get that. And, I, and I, it comes to mind a, a quote from St. Augustine, and some of you guys may have heard it. It says, the truth is like a lion. You don't have to defend it. Let it loose. It will defend itself. How many of you guys heard that before? Pretty powerful, pretty powerful, right? And there's definitely very real truth to that. But we also know that the devil roars around like a lion, prowling, seeking to devour those that they can consume. There's this very real fear that takes place. And what happens is I believe that we begin to engage with people or, or disengage with people because there's this very real fear that comes into place and we forget to have the reasoning ability to be able to turn around, take the key, unlock the cage to the very real lion who is the lion of the king of Judah. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen? We begin to allow that truth to begin to kind of like put the, the fake one on, uh, 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 in, its, in its seat. And so, now that we're tracking here, I have to say this. I believe that every Christian should be able to give a reasoned defense of his hope in Christ, especially in the hopeless situations that we find ourselves living in today. I'll say it again. I believe every Christian should be able to give a reasoned defense of his hope, his or her hope, in Christ, especially in a hopeless situation that we find ourselves living in today. So the word apologetics is first seen in the New Testament in 1 Peter 3.15, where the Apostle Peter addresses the early Christians in Asia Minor, it's a Roman province, and who are suffering persecution because of their faith in Christ. And he says this, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being able, being prepared to make a defense, that word defense, apologia, to anyone who asks you for a reason, the logos, for the hope that is within you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And so we find within this verse, the Christian apologetics is laid out pretty beautifully in two parts. Two parts. Now follow with me. I know some of you guys are like this. It's kind of like, uh, but just follow with me. First part, objective reasons and evidence that Christianity is true or how it corresponds with reality. And the second part of apologetics is that we are able to communicate this truth to the world around us. We're able to communicate this truth to the world around us. So this sets up pretty well for what I believe the heart of Acts 17 
is all about and why I've entitled today's message, Faith Versus Reason. Now, at the top of your bulletins, you may see that that verse is uh, striked out, and that is on purpose. And what I want you to write in there is put and, put the little, little symbol of and. Everybody do it. Go ahead and do it right now. If you don't have your bulletins, do it in your mind. So instead of it saying faith verse reason, it should read faith. We're good. We're, we're tracking. We're moving. Okay, I like it. Faith and reason. Faith and reason. Now, we can very much see in our world today that these two can be combative, right? Right? I mean, you just go onto YouTube and you begin to do a search of atheist view of Christianity, or you begin to look at or hear conversations from your coworkers or just people around you or maybe even your own thoughts where you begin to think that, man, this, this stance that to believe in God in general is like committing intellectual suicide. It's this, this thought that we call faith is, is just unreasonable. It's just old pre-scientific nonsense. Believing in Bronze Age mythology. Fall, uh, fail, uh, falling for any fairy tale type of story. Right? Is that it's just irrational. There's no, the Christianity is just irrational. There's no, it's, just, it's just faith. There's no thought involved at all. And on the flip side, you have people in the church that when you begin to ask questions about deep theological truths, the Trinity or whatever, they said, no, just, just, just accept it. Just, like, just, just, just don't, don't ask questions. Or, or you begin to read books outside of the Bible and all of a sudden you're committing heresy. And then thinking and thought, intelligence is, is stifled. It's both sides. And in this chapter, in Acts chapter 17, we get to see through the Apostle Paul's interaction with a group of people how faith and reason connect in a powerful way. And so here's the bottom line of today's message. If you don't remember anything, remember this, the church must be full of faith and reason in order to be effective witness in the world today. I'll say it again. The church must be full of faith and reason if we are to be an effective witness in the world today. In just a few minutes, we're going to see in this chapter three different cities that the Apostle Paul encounters on his second missionary journey. And we'll begin to see a, a pattern emerging. And uh, the first two uh, are going to, you know, we're going to run through pretty quick because I'm going to really sit in the third city and sit in this encounter that, that Paul has in this third city that's really powerful and I believe is the highlight of Acts chapter 17. And we're going to start digging into it. But before we do so, I'd like to pray and kind of, and then we'll catch us all up with the Apostle Paul. So let's go ahead and put our pens down, let's pray, and uh, let's go to the Lord. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much. I thank you so much that you are the most intelligent, beautiful, wise creation. You, Jesus, you are wisdom itself. God, I thank you for giving us the ability to think. I thank you for giving us our minds. I thank you, Lord, that you, um, that you allow us to be challenged at times. Not so that we can be dissuaded from the heart and the truth of who you are and of your son, Jesus, or the word of God, but so that we can become grounded deeper in you and be able to take that truth and communicate it to the world around us. So, Father, I pray that you open up minds here, open up hearts, I pray that you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we have the apostle. 
<laughs> you think I'm going to finish that quick? Heck no. No, 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 no. You guys. <laughs> no. We got more time. Y'all just take your time back there. I'm like trying to kick me off stage. Man, we're about to dig in. We're about to eat some food here, man. Come on. All right. No. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I absolutely love it. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> bring us back to the Apostle Paul. For those of you guys who don't know who he is, this dude was a zealous Jewish Pharisee that was absolutely running amok in the, uh, in the church. He was persecuting. He was, he was uh, getting them all together. He was trying to absolutely crush the faith, the way of Christ. And that was until he had an encounter with the resurrected Jesus on a road to Damascus. And it absolutely transformed this hardline Pharisee Jew into the preacher of the grace, the carrier of the gospel, and becomes the, one of the most influential Christian leaders in all of history and writes two-thirds of the New Testament. It's incredible. Incredible dude. And God tells him that he's going to be a chosen instrument to the Gentiles. He's going to be a chosen instrument to bring the gospel, not just to the Jews, but now also to the rest of the world. And he also tells them that he's going to be suffering big time for it. Suffering big time for it. And suffering he did. Here in Acts 17, the Apostle Paul and the company are traveling now on their second missionary journey which was meant to be a, a time of strengthening the believers in their first journey. And, uh, and they're, they're kind of going along. God calls the Apostle Paul and company over into the district of Macedonia, into Macedonia um, through a dream where things start popping off. I mean, just incredible stuff start, start happening. They're traveling um, along the uh, Ignatio Way or the Roman road systems at the time, which, which actually was you know, a providential thing that God was orchestrating to be able to take this road system, uh, or take the gospel through this road system to the rest of the world. And so Acts 17, verse 1 through 4, here we go. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, which was one of the most richest, influential cities in Macedonia, where they, there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned, underline that, reasoned with, with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. And some of the Jews were, per, uh, were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent Women. So we see here Paul and company are going to the Jewish synagogue. He reasons and dialogues with them about the gospel, um, communicates the, the hope that he has in Christ. In verse 4, we, we see that some of the Jews get saved, including um, some God fearing Greeks and a few prominent women. Everybody got that? Okay, good. We're moving forward. Uh, verse 5. But other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. So what's happening here? The Jews in Thessalonica are upset. And it's not what you would think it would be about, you know, theological, you know, uh, issues with their combating with their faith. You know, why were they upset? Because they were jealous why were they jealous? Because the Apostle Paul comes into their town, begins to preach the truth of the gospel, and these very wealthy, well-to-do Greeks who are, you know, God-fearing in that town begin to be won over for the sake of the gospel. These other Jews as well, the, they, they, they begin to be persuaded and they follow Paul and, and, and become disciples of, of Christ. And they begin to lose tithes and power and influence. 
jealousy in religious institutions? Never. Never. We keep going. We could spend some time here preaching about <laughs> all the different accusations that they made and how they're connected to what you know, Jesus was um, accused of as well. Um, but basically, these, Jew- these jealous Jews uh, form this mob, and it, uh, and it doesn't take much to stir people up, as you know, to, to kind of kind of you know, begin to you know, fit your mold and begin to kind of stir people up and get them all anxious and upset and troubled, right? And so f- they force Paul and company out of Thessalonica, and they continue on to a town called Berea, where we pick up in verse 10. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Uh, does that sound familiar? It goes into the synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were more noble character than those in Thessalonica. There's a lot that can be said there. For they received the, the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see what Paul was, uh, said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. What happens here? We're seeing a pattern. Where does Paul go? He goes to the synagogue. What does he do? He reasons with the people about the gospel of Jesus Christ. What's the result? A few people get saved, and then what happens? You can guess it. A riot happens. (laughs) Start a riot, you know? Ah, I can't believe he's bringing this in our way. He's just, he's just messing things up. Ah, you know, people get this, can, can sometimes get really just frustrated, and it's not necessarily about what theological truths, but why is it? It's because there's other issues going on there too, right? There's other baggage that we have to wrestle with. Man, we can go on to that. I can, I, can, I can talk about that a little bit too, but we got to keep on moving. And now I'm paraphrasing. There's a, there's, you know, there's... Uh, this overall pattern of Paul going to the synagogues, reasons with the people regarding the gospel, people get saved, a riot breaks out, and Paul and Silas are forced out. And why, 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 why would Paul and Silas, why would they keep going and doing what they're doing when they know that there's going to be this uh, persecution, they know there's going to be this tension, they know there's going to be some some crazy fools that are going to be getting all upset and causing a ruckus, stirring up stuff and trying to push them out. Why would they do such a thing? You know why? Because the early church, these believers, these followers of Christ, Jesus wasn't just their Savior. He was their Lord. He was their King. Who they surrendered their lives to. And the same Lord told Paul and Silas in the early church that they would be empowered by the Holy Spirit to be his witnesses to the world around them is the same Lord who commands you and I to be living that out today. You see, when Jesus Christ is Lord of our lives, even riots become opportunities to witness. See, what on the surface of our lives, sometimes we're like, man, why is this happening? Why are we going through this? Why do I have to experience this? Why, 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 why? And we're not, and sometimes we're not thinking, realizing that we're a part of a bigger picture as followers of Christ. We're a part of a bigger picture and a mission and a focus that God has for us. And sometimes he allows these difficult situations in our lives to get us out and into the place where he wants us. You see, not every single riot That's a bad thing. It may just very well become the catalyst to get us to where God wants us. It's not about comfortability. It's not about our convenience. It's about our loving obedience to the King of kings and the Lord of lords and what he commands us as his children to be. We are the church. We are the church. Let me tell you something. That takes authentic faith, right? That that, that takes authentic faith faith in the resurrected Lord to be an effective witness, but also takes the ability to reason, to communicate, to give a logical defense for the hope you and I have to uh, have to the world around us. Can I just tell you, no longer can the circular arguments of because the Bible told me so is going to be an effective witness to the world today. I'm just going to be real. 
There's people out there when you say that to them, they're like, mm, you're dumb. You're like, what? Don't you believe it? The Bible says it. They're like, hmm. So? And they're waiting for some, like, thought behind it. They're waiting for some people that have some reason behind it. Long gone are the days where there's a common sense of respect for the Bible and a reverence for the church and the pastors to the everyday America, American and elsewhere. Yes, even the Bible Belt. There are many unchurched and Bible illiterate people. I've hit the streets sharing the gospel with people, and I've, I've asked the question, have you heard the gospel before? You know the question I hear from most of them? What are you talking about the gospel? What do you mean? What's the gospel? Like, we're in South Carolina, Anderson, South Carolina. They should know the gospel. No, they don't. No, they don't. The majority do not. So how can we be an effective witness to the people like this? We need to uh, look no further than Paul in Athens. This is the highlight of the chapter in a pivotal point in history for the expansion of the church. It's found in verse 16 as we move forward. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, remember he was, he was forced out of Berea. He was, a riot took place. The, the, the people begin to, uh, 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 the believers in that, in that town begin to kind of, like, hey, you need to get out of this place. You need to go further out. You need to go. So he gets on the boat, and he goes all the way south to, to Athens, Greece. And what happens is he reasons. Underline that. In the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well in the marketplace day by day with those who happen to be there, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers begin to debate with him some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was pre preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And then they took him and um, brought him to a meeting of the Oropagus, or what the Romans later called Mars Hill. So let me just paint this picture for you. Riot, gotta go, people are trying to kill me put on a boat, sent far, far away because there's some very dedicated mobs that are trying to come after Paul and the company. He, he goes to this place called Athens, Greece, which at this time, it was no longer at the height of its glory like it was in the 4th and 5th century BC, but don't get it twisted, this was still the cultural and intellectual epicenter of the Roman Empire. These were no dummies that he began to, this land that he came into. These weren't, these weren't stupid people. And I don't know about you, but I can get really intimidated when I get around some really smart people. Anybody, any, any of you, am I just the only insecure one sometimes, you know? <laughs> you get around really smart people. I mean, I remember this time when I was with my wife and, and we, were, uh, we were with our uncle, her uncles and we were on this little vacation and they said, hey, do you want to play trivia? And I was like, Sure, and you know these guys are like highly educated, very smart dudes, and they're uh, like embarrassing me, <laughs> like with the knowledge they have. I just felt like so like intimidated. I'm like, okay, whatever, you know. Okay, I just I'm just this you know poor old dumb Christian over here. You know what I mean? I just kind of those thoughts kind of go through your mind. Has anybody been there before? Am I just the only one? Okay, I'm the only one. Okay, sorry. Um, but here, here Paul is in this very influential city, and, he sh and he, I'm sure he couldn't help but recognize the sheer weight of this, of this place, of this influential place. And, and I mean, you know, we can see the, the Greco-Roman uh, influences in our world today, right now. It's in our governments. It's in our school systems. It's, it's ever, this, is, this is an influential, very powerful place and the Greeks were also known by the world over by their art and their architecture. They, they, they are portraying a lot of their Greek gods and goddesses, and for a monotheistic Jew as Paul was, this was like graven images were like absolutely like a front to him. And so he, what happens? He, verse 17, he reasoned. He created dialogue. He, he, he began to have a conversation with them. He began having a gospel conversations with the people. And I can picture him being in the marketplace, interacting, interacting with the people around him, observing their way of life, grieved by, all, all, uh, grieved by uh, because of all the very impressive 
um, uh, city, there, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was impressive, but there, he was grieved by the fact that they were still lost without the gospel. Didn't matter how, how brilliant, how influential, how beautiful they were. Come on, church, sometimes we get so captivated by the world and how beautiful and how, you know, how they just got it. They got money. They got, they're just very smart. And, to, and then we begin to, what, become intimidated. But Paul, right here, he begins to dialogue with him. He begins to, he, just, he boldly, empowered by the Holy Spirit, begins to encounter and, and, and ask questions. I can see him just kind of going through the marketplace and kind of observing what's going on and, and, and allowing him to hear the heart of the people of Athens. You know what we don't see? We don't see Paul picketing outside of, of the marketplace with, a, you know, with signs uh, you know, that says, God hates idols. You know, or Exodus 4 written on it with Roman numerals. Like, we don't, we, don't, we don't see the Apostle Paul doing that in this place. You know, we also don't see, we don't see him getting infuriated by the Athenians believing um, what they believe and, 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 hurl, and hur, um, hurling insults on him. We don't see him rolling up a Torah and smacking him over the head and saying, I can't believe you. Why? Why? Because they don't, they don't know the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They have no basis. They have no foundation like he was reasoning with the Jews in the synagogue. He was reasoning through the scriptures within the Old Testament to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. These were pagans. They had no, ba- they had no foundation whatsoever of the Hebrew faith, of, 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 of the Hebraic uh, culture. And we certainly don't see Paul shrinking back and not encountering those around him because he was too concerned about offending them or looking foolish. No, it says he both witnessed in the synagogue and in the, in the marketplace. He was entering into dialogue with the people boldly and tactfully engaging the gospel conversations with people. And it was at this point that he caught the attention of a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Now follow with me. Who are they? Epicureans, you may know them, they're materialist through and through. They, they just believe that everything comes from atoms and, and particles of matter. They didn't believe in life after death. And they literally loved everything that felt good, right? Their happiness or pleasure was their primary goal. If it was eating, man, eat to your heart's content. If it was, man, having sex, man, just, just have sex, no limit. Like, if it was drinking, get hammered. Some of you are like, I know some Epicureans. No, like, like, it's this, we see it in our world today. It is not lost. It's the same kind of philosophy. And what they did, they just systematized it and they made it a religion. And then there were the Stoics. Man, these were the, these were the thinkers. The thinking, they, they prized thinking above feeling. They tried to live in harmony with nature and they placed a high value Again, on, on, on reason, suppressing their desire for pleasure. Thus, they were very disciplined. They believed that the spark of divinity was found in, you know, the soul of earth. And so a few of them, each of them were brilliant groups. They, they're, they're smart. They're thinkers. They sat all day and just thought. How many of us just sat all day and just thought and, like, thought about these different, what? We look at her, you know, come on. Like, what? And we look at them, oh, well, they're just, you know, these you know, prehistoric people or whatever. No, no, no. These were smart people. <laughs> they were thinkers. And they're also lost spiritually. And when they looked at Paul, when he was presenting the gospel, they looked at him and said, you are a bumbling idiot. You're a bumbling idiot. Some, some of them even said, man, like, he's just, he's just promoting these foreign guard, gods. Let me tell you something about Paul. He can be said, there can be said a lot about Paul. But a bumbling idiot he was not. This dude came from Tarsus, which is an educational center. He was studied under some of the most uh, uh, brilliant teachers of his day. He spent a lot of his time undoubtedly uh, thinking and reasoning through scriptures and literature and, and, and so much so that we even see that he, he understands a little bit of the Greek culture as well. And so he begins to reason with them so passionately that some of the Athenians begin listening to what he has to say and they end up inviting him to the Areopagus or the Mars Hill, which is later that Romans called it, Mars Hill. 
And this was essentially like the Supreme Court of their day. And it's intimidating. Have you all been in some intimidating spots before? Have you all been to court before? <laughs> Have you ever had to like stand and defend like what's your way of life? Or, you know, I, your honor, I didn't do it. Or, you know, like this guy, like it just, it's just intimidating. This was the Supreme Court of the Athenians. And he's invited there to, to because there's, um, because they wanted to settle this matter. There was, uh, there was a place where they settled um, political and government and religious matters. So it was a big deal. So verse 19 says, Then they took him and brought him to the meeting of the Oropagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. So all the Athenians and, their belie- and foreigners who lived there spent time, once again, their thinking, and, and that's part of what they did. So what's going on in here, their intellect was peaked. It was peaked. And they began to say, I want to hear more. Verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Oropagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Just circle that. Who is he speaking to? Once again, he's not speaking to Jews. He's speaking to pagans. He's speaking to the Athenians. And he says... What does he do? He begins to lay down for what the church should do as we witness to the world around us. He meets them where they are. He meets them where they were. Verse 23, for as I walked around and I looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. See, Paul prepared and he began to study the culture. He began to understand what was going on, what was important to these people. Because he wasn't going to kind of bring the gospel to them through the, 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 the Torah, through the Old Testament. He was going to have to bring it to where they were. On their level. What they held important. Church, if we were expecting to be a witness to the world around us. We cannot sit on a Sunday morning and expect them to just come in here and that's where we're going to win souls. We have to meet them where they are. We have to be able to think and reason and encounter and engage the people around us in the marketplace. As we come and as we go, the people that, that God has put in our lives, their souls, and don't get so caught up with the outside of they're just, they have it all together. No. If they don't know Jesus Christ, they are lost and they're craving, they're looking. There's something inside them that says there's something missing. And what they need to have is somebody that's going to come and meet them right where they are and reason with them. He's reasoning with their intellect. We met them where they are. The God, he says, who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands and he is not served by human hands as if he needs anything, Paul says. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. What is he doing? He's reasoning with their intellect. He's saying, yes, you recognize the fingerprints of God in nature. You see these different things, and, and you're kind of like grasping around. But let me just speak to you what the one true God is all about. Let me just tell you who it is. Because the one true God is not bound by your temples. And he's not in need of anything as if you had to serve him in that, in that nature. But he's the one that gives life this kind of reasoning is the, is the kind of beginning or existence of God looks to be, um, it's, the, it's, the, it's presenting to them uh, the existence of God. And it's where, uh, it's a kind of a, a, a way of argument through creation and through observation. And many brilliant thinkers of the past have, come, have created arguments. One of the most compelling would be St. Thomas Aquinas who studied scriptures in great depth as well as Aristotle and other philosophers of the past and came up with five different arguments. The, the last argument, the, the, the fifth one, is the teleological argument. Maybe some of you guys heard of it another way, intelligent design. 
intelligent design. And just kind of quick summary of what that is. It's basically uh, an argument by analogy. He's saying if you look at, um, let's say, a book or whatever, and it's got, you know, words on it, pictures, there's ink, there's, 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 there's some, you know, sentence structure on it. You don't look at that book and say, oh, that just appeared out of nothing. No, you look at that and you begin to say, no, there's, there's some thought behind it. There is a kind of intelligent design purpose for this book that was behind this book. If you were to say to somebody that it just kind of came out of nowhere, people would look at you crazy. And so he says, likewise, if you look and you observe the human body and you look at the, just the, cent- the central nervous system itself, are you kidding me? How incredibly detailed our bodies and the way we're created Just reason alone, logic alone, just the way that we've been, there's, there's, there's intelligence behind it. and just didn't happen out of nowhere. And so he begins to kind of address them from this creation, uh, creation creator mindset. And, uh, and then he begins to engage with the truth of the gospel. Verse 26, from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries and their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, and some, as some of your own poets have, uh, have said, we are his offspring. Again, he's meeting them right where they are on their level. Verse 29, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. Verse 30, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now in, he commands all people everywhere to repent. Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, agnostics, all people everywhere. For he has set a day when the judge, when he will judge the world justice by the man he has appointed he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead see you brought in the you can't share the gospel you can't reason with somebody and witness to somebody and leave out the resurrection of Jesus Christ no matter how foolish that seems to them that's when you really unlock the key to the cage of the real lion, Judah, Jesus, the resurrected king. And it says, verse 32, when they had heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And he later goes on to say that some people believing, uh, believed, including a member of the Oropagus, the council themselves, and a woman named Demarius, would go down in history as becoming the first converts in Athens, Greece, and completely revolutionizing the place for the gospel of Christ. You see, we got to engage in gospel conversations. We have to be meeting people where they are. We have to be a church that is not afraid to engage and ask questions and be and be challenged. We can't be a, a church that is just okay with allowing the world that we see, the people that are walking around in darkness. Just walk by us without engaging them with the truth of the gospel and reasoning with them, loving right where they are. We can't do it. In your bulletins, there's a really simple tool that I, I put in there for you. There's, there's three circles. It's called the three circles, and it's um, from, uh, from this webs- website, Life uh, Conversation, life, uh, LifeOnMission.com. Uh, it's in there. And uh, I'm just going to walk with it through you real quick. And this is just a, it's a simple tool. It's not the tool. It's just a simple tool that for us as, as children of God, as, as believers, if we want to be a witness to the world around us to be able to engage in gospel conversations, this is a great way to do it. And so we meet people right where they are, and so we start with brokenness. You just tell them, hey, you see brokenness all around us. We can see it. We turn on the, the TV. We see suicide bombings. We see school shootings. We hear uh, about politicians lying and cheating. It is, 
it's everywhere around. It's not just the world that's broken, but we are broken people too. And that's not part of God's perf- perfect design, though. God's perfect design was that we would be in right relationship with him and with others, that there was peace, that there was relationship. The Bible says that he looked at it and said it was good, this world was good. But what got us from there to brokenness? Sin. Sin is everything that you say and you do that's against God's perfect design for us, against his intent for us. And what does that sin do in our lives? It causes that brokenness, and we try to get out of that brokenness by several different ways. Some choose sports, some choose relationships, career, philosophy. For me, it was sports and relationships that I used to kind of get out of that brokenness, try to get out of the brokenness. What happens, it keeps snapping me back in, and it wasn't until I heard somebody who encountered me with the gospel of Jesus Christ it told me the good news that Jesus Christ is God's only begotten son. He came into a broken world, this third circle. They came into a broken world. He lived a sinless life. He fulfilled God's law that I could not do on my own. And he willingly laid down his life, paid the penalty of my sin, and then rose again three days later. And he taught that anybody, if they would, one, they would turn, or another word for that is repent, and two, trust and follow him. He, he said that he would forgive them of their sins, that he would cause them to grow and restore them back into right relationship, and then he would cause them to go back into a broken world. And then you ask the people the question, out of these two circles, where do you find yourself today? And what happens, you begin to engage in a conversation with with people. And you begin to allow them to ask questions, to be able to say what they're going through. Or or you begin to meet them right there on their level. You begin to listen to them genuinely because because they're a human being, not because of their political or religious background. You look at it because of their souls like Paul did to the Athenians. He says, God loves you. And just like anything, you need to practice this. We need to be trained in this. You guys train in your jobs. Athletes, you train in your sports. We should be training ourselves to be able to communicate the gospel to the world around us. Amen? We should be practicing this. So when we go up to somebody, this wasn't the first time I've done this with you, with you guys. I've practiced this over and over, and I've actually done it with people. <laughs> and it's incredible what happens. They begin to ask questions, and they begin to be engaged, and they begin to what? They get, God begins to do a work and stir something in their heart, and I begin to develop a way to be able to communicate and encounter people and, and, and ask questions and reason with them. And what happens is some people get saved. They accept that message. They become born again. And so I encourage all of you to practice this on your own. And then you go into the world around you. In conclusion, there's some people here today, this morning, maybe you're, and even some of you guys are going to be watching on the internet. And right now, you're afraid to completely surrender to Christ because somewhere along the way, you heard that to be a believer of all of Christ means you have to turn off your mind. Can I just refute that real quick, please? The God of the, that we see in the inspired word of God is not afraid of your questions. Matter of fact, he's the creator of your mind. And one of the greatest commandments God gives is that we would love God with all our heart, with all of our soul, all of our strength, and all of our mind. And so if you think that this Relationship with God, it means you have to turn off your mind. Do not believe that. Ask questions. Seek wrestle with those deep theological truths. Wrestle, wrestle with it. 
Can I just tell you the Bible is not meant to just like read it once and you're done with it? No, it's an invitation to a journey to understand who he is, to go understand of what, it, what, what the truth behind what we see in the natural realm. And let me speak to the church again. Enthusiasm without knowledge is dangerous. It's no good. Proverbs says it, it makes haste makes mistakes or haste make mistakes can I just be transparent with you I don't like this sometimes <laughs> the evangelist in me is like you need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ you need to repent you know there's this like there's this sense of, you need to repent now like and yes there needs to be urgency but there also needs to be an open mind and a willingness to be able to meet people at their level and a willingness to be able to be challenged in, in the way you communicate the gospel. Not being afraid of it because the truth is we do have the real lion, the truth. And when he's unleashed, it's powerful. But we've got to unlock that. We've got to present the gospel. We've got to be able to meet people where they are. We've got to be a church that thinks. We've got to be a church that thinks. Hey, and that's Holy Spirit empowered, man. Can I tell you? That's Holy Spirit empowered to be his witnesses. If you think this is about being have this, the best argument so that you can debate somebody and you can prove that they're wrong, no, 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 no you missed the point. This isn't about winning debates. This isn't about winning arguments. This is about winning souls. It's about being a witness. This is about testifying to the, the truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which sets captives free. This is real hope in a world that's very hopeless. So again, the question I ask you, how do you and I view Acts 1-8? Is it just something really cool back then the guy was doing? There's just some description of some really cool stuff, or is that us, the church, today, and the same mandate and the same calling? We are empowered people to be his witnesses to the world around us. You, me, it's not a building. It's a people of God, full of faith, full of reason, living life on mission, obediently to the king of kings in the world, in the world around us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that we would be a people, your people, who are empowered by your Spirit. who are filled with faith, hope, filled with your love. And God, that we'd also be a people that is filled with a desire to, to reason and to, to think and to be able to wrestle with different things and be able to meet people right where they are. God, you didn't tell the church that they have to shut off their mind you told us to love us with, love you with our minds and our hearts and our souls. God, I pray that, Lord, that we would be a people that engages the culture around us, which is very much skeptic, that is very much post-Christian, very much world that is highly values maybe uh, education or degrees and careers and, and all that rather than they value being a child of God and knowing the truth of who you are. Lord, I pray that you would send us, that you'd send the church, that when we leave here, Father, that we would leave as people 
that know that you are empowering us to meet people where they are. You are, you are, meeting, you are calling us to be a people that is not intimidated by those around us. That you're calling us to live boldly and passionately the gospel that you have proclaimed to us, Lord, that the, that the Easter resurrection didn't just stay there, but it becomes the very breath that we breathe and the way we carry ourselves. Holy Spirit, lead us, compel us, convict us. Uh, Lord, I pray for those in this room that that don't know you, Jesus, and, and once again, that they feel like they have to turn off their mind to surrender to you. I pray, God, that you would just begin to remind them of who you are. Show them, God. Put people in their lives that will reason with them, walk with them. And God, may you receive all the glory and all the honor and all the power and all the praise. In Jesus' name.